Let's please welcome from Huntsville, Alabama, Mr. Wade Petter. So my first question is, how many of you think this past Saturday, Dan Mullen told the city state to hold back? <laughs> we all hope, yeah, we hope, right? I don't think anyone at LSU to see all the stuff they really have. Uh, that they look like they were holding back to me, and, and I hope the same as you. Uh, so I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for taking the time to, to come today. Um, I know we have lots of different types of uh, people here in different fields, so I wanted to kind of start out to, to kind of get an overview of, of, of you by, by raising hands. Um, if you're in the, um, I think it's the ECE design <coughs> class, if you're in that class, would you raise your hand? Wow. Okay, thanks. Um, if you are a in a technical field, um, in the entrepreneurship uh, uh, series, would you raise your hand? And if you're in a business field in the entrepreneurship series, would you raise your hand? These are folks are being shy. Okay, <laughs> some shy people. Okay. Um, so we've got a lot of technical people here today. So for those of you who aren't technical, I apologize. I'll throw in some technical stuff to kind of keep them interested. Um, but uh, I, I was thinking about um, how do I kind of uh, introduce everything, and I thought, well, let me just first start by thanking Eric for inviting me to come here. Um, I've really enjoyed working with him over the last few months, and um, uh, it's, it's been uh, great to see everything that's going on with the Entrepreneurship Center and, and all the progress that's continued to be made. <clears throat> and uh, also want to thank uh, someone who's not going to be happy that I'm going to thank her, uh, but my daughter, Katie, is here uh, on the front row down here. Um, she is a senior in computer science at University of Alabama, but she's wearing the city state shirt today. Um, and uh, my son is a junior at the University of Alabama in marketing. And you're all thinking, well, what's your problem, Wade? Why didn't you fix this? <laughs> well, I put first things first. They have something in common with all of us in the room. They hate with their passion Ole Miss. They hate Ole Miss. So I did something right. Uh, uh, so what I want to talk about today, um, I talked with Eric, and he said, look, you need to give some perspective. Um, you need to talk about, let them know where you came from, uh, what your career was like. And I'll do about 10 minutes of that. And then I thought about the perspective, and I thought about, you know, what can I really convey in this time frame that would help the most in terms of starting businesses, understanding uh, kind of basic concepts of companies and so forth. I decided it's a strategy. Um, and I hope you can tell that that's uh, from Game of Thrones. Um, my kids told me I love Game of Thrones, so I started looking at it a couple of years ago, and I really did like it. Although I'm not going to watch it anymore because they killed Jon Snow. So, um, so let's, uh, let's kind of dive in. So the first part is going to be kind of background. Yeah. 
first part's going to be kind of background on, on me, so you can kind of get some perspective of, of where I'm coming from. And then we'll go into the, the strategy in more detail. And some of this is going to be an interactive thing, so, I'm going, so I want you to participate. So uh, who am I? Well, I grew up in Columbus, Mississippi, just down the road. Um, I came to Mississippi State in, way back when in 1979, and I graduated in December of 1983. Um, and yes, that was a long time ago. Um, I wanted to kind of give you some idea of how long ago that was. Um, I was 22 years old when I graduated, and IBM introduced the XT with a 10 megabyte card drive. <laughs> this is not working. There we go. Um, the CD-ROM technology comes out. You could actually buy one in Radio Shack. I remember when they came out, how proud Radio Shack was of Microsoft launches words. <laughs> Believe it or not, C was introduced in that <clears throat> There was a huge video game industry crash, and all the press was saying video games are history, they're never going to amount to anything, everybody ought to get out, it's a useless, useless area, and everything. <clears throat> That was pretty, pretty important. Give us the internet. A one megabyte RAM lease with five and a quarter inch floppy and five megabyte RAM. What can you do with that? There were 10 million computers in use in the United States. It's 10 million. So it kind of gives you a sense of what the world was like at the time that I left. And I want to kind of give you a sense of, well, you know, what's it like for me relative to what's it going to be like for you in the future? So a lot of things change, but um, Windows, Windows was announced, and that kind of changed everything. It took a while to change everything, but it, but it uh, definitely changed everything. And all I wanted to do was design computers. That's why I came to college. That's what I wanted to learn. Um, so... I leave and I, I go, to design, go to design computers in 1983. So the path from where you are today to where I, I am was to 1983 to 2015. So what I did is I did a little math and said, that's like you coming back and giving this talk in 2047. <laughs> you think it will be changed? You think people will laugh as much as you're laughing at what was out then? I actually laugh more because the, the pace is accelerating. So what we have today will look extremely primitive compared to what we had in 2014. So yeah, there's a lot of water under the bridge. Um, and, and I want to talk about now, um, what did I do from 1983 to 2015? How did I get here? So the first thing I did is I took a job out of school um, at a company called Intergraph. Corporation in Huntsville, Alabama. Back then, PCs weren't very powerful. As you can see, the XT was lost. So people bought workstations to do real work. When they wanted to do design work, they bought workstations. Those workstations were expensive. I mean, in those days, when it first started, those workstations were terminals. And the computer to actually do the computing was a, was a mini computer. So it was back in a closet somewhere. So, you know, it started out very primitive and, and kind of rude. Um, and I uh, 
I started out designing Unix computers, the, the computer system that ran the Unix operating system. That was my first job. Um, and also doing some graphics work. <clears throat> um, and eventually had a group that designed, a group of engineers who were responsible for designing uh, Unix systems. And then eventually became vice president of engineering. Um, and a, a later president and CEO of the computer business. And there were a lot of uh, employees in this. I mean, it was a large company. And I'll show you why I'm telling you this here in just a minute. But I want to show you that I've had uh, experience on both ends of the spectrum, running large companies, starting small companies. And this was a very interesting uh, uh, work. It was very state-of-the-art kind of work. It was very uh, hardware-oriented. And this was back in the day. The first memory system I designed was a one megabyte memory system. And that sounds like laughable because you can get that much memory in, in little tiny chips today that come with the processor. Back then, you had to have boards you know, this large. And you had like 100 chips on the board. And so it was a really complicated problem. And you had to worry about the electrical characteristics of things as well as the electronic characteristics and software and so much stuff that you had to do. Um, so it was a very interesting uh, job, and uh, eventually um, we had a, a division in California that made uh, microprocessors, and we had some pretty fundamental patents that Intel copied, and uh, we sued Intel, and Intel didn't like that, and so they were putting the computer business out of business, so I, I split it up into three pieces and sold them. Um, one, of the, one of the businesses uh, was bought by NVIDIA. And it was graphics. So if you have NVIDIA graphics today, it has technology that, that we were working on back in these days inside. So um, I left, it, left uh, that business. And in parallel with that business, though, I had started another business. Um, it was to make um, appliances smart. I wanted to try to take the computer capability embedded in appliances. So we did a computerized shower. Um, and we made, I don't know, a couple hundred of them. Bill Gates bought, I think, about 20 of them and put them in his big mansion. Uh, so we had, these, we had our computerized shower in his mansion. Um, we had about 20 employees, 20 employees and um, the great thing about this, though, was working on this business in parallel with being at Intergraph taught me a lot about business. So it was a great way to learn about business. And so I mean, I, at lunch, I was encouraging people Start a business. Start something small. Don't take huge risks. Start something small to really learn about it. <clears throat> it helps you not only if that business is successful, but it helps teach you the kind of things that you need to learn uh, to be successful inside larger companies. Um, so this second business um, was eventually sold, and uh, it uh, also had uh, technology. You familiar with the faucets that turn on by themselves when you put your hands on them. Um, one of the other inventions was using the Palm Pilot. You can tell how long ago this was. Use the Palm Pilot in the infrared to communicate with the faucets so that you could tell how what's the battery life left on the faucet or you could change the settings. Before that, it took 30 minutes for a maintenance person to go up underneath the sinks. If you change these things, it cost them a lot of money to change it. So the company that ended up buying us uh, for that technology they went from number five in the, in the electronic faucet business to number two in the electronic faucet business. It was, it was important uh, technology. Um, another company was wireless distance measurement. And 
the uh, this was a uh, an ability to tell how far far away something was pretty far. I mean, uh, if you go out a thousand feet um, outside an open field, and we ended up uh, licensing this technology to a company called Woodstream, and it's a dog fence product. Today. And then I, another smart appliance business that I started um, and licensed the technology uh, was about computerizing water heaters. And you can buy those in Lowe's. They're not Whirlpool products, um, in Lowe's. And how many of you have heard of the Internet of Things? Fewer than our thoughts. Let me spend this, since we've got so many technical people in here, let me spend this a little bit of time on, on this Internet of Things. Um, so Synapse Wireless was a, a company that I started uh, with uh, three other people, and we were, we were looking at where was the industry going to be going in the future. And uh, what the industry were focused on was internet. We were saying, what's going to happen in the future? And we were, we were thinking, well, there's so many things that you ought to be getting data out of that you can't get data out of today. That's got to be a direction of the future, and you're going to need very low power, low cost wireless to do that. And so what we invented was a mesh network that runs on little tiny microprocessors, microcontrollers, um, run, would run with the application within 60K of memory. So the operating system that we invented that did the mesh networking, as well as the application that run in 60K. So it could run on really, really inexpensive uh, microcontrollers, less than a dollar. And it would mesh network that. So if you deployed, you know, 20 of them in, in this building, they would find each other and they'd find paths to be able to get the information back to a central point that would take it out to the internet. And then that data is sent, as it's collected, it's sent up to a up to a, up to the cloud to the server, and there's software on the server that tries to learn uh, business kind of decisions that people can make to improve their business, increase the profitability, and those kinds of things. And so these types of devices are going everywhere. Um, and uh, the way uh, the way this, this got sold, um, we got a call in uh, January from Google. And Google said that they were wanting to show at their uh, Google I.O. event in April of, that, of 2011, they wanted to show lighting control. They wanted to show stage lighting control. And they wanted to show how cool the Internet of Things was. And they'd already tried four or five different technologies, and they said, we can't get them to work. Would y'all stuff work? And we said, sure, it will. And so they took it. Two weeks later, they called back, and they had made tons of progress. They only needed a few, a little bit of help, and they had it working. And they showed it at Google I.O., but they didn't tell anybody what it was. Um, so I decided that I was going to find a way to let people know it was us. Um, and I did that through an editor friend. Um, and he wrote some articles and said that what they had used at, at Google I.O. was Synapse Wireless technology. Um, and then there was another event, um, and I had decided that Google was interested um, in this technology and in this market space, and there was another event that was going to be happening, I think, in September of that year. And so I told our chief technology officer, who was going to be on the Google campus, I said, you're going to this, we're going to get a little booth, and you're going to go to this, and I want you to do the demo on an iPad. Why do you think I would have asked him to do it on the iPad? 
make Google so mad? I wanted to make it mad. we got to have this. Um, and so in December of 2011, I got a call from Andy Rubin, who was the inventor of Android and was running the Android business for Google, saying that they wanted to either pay Synapse Wireless to open source our software and make it part of Android, or they wanted to buy the company. Um, myself, along with the board of directors, decided that we should start a process to sell the company. The Internet of Things space was really heating up. And we wanted to make sure that we looked at all the all the capability of uh, people out there to buy this business. So we ended up selling the business in 2012. Uh, we started it in 2007. We sold it in 2012. I raised 13 million dollars for this business over those years, and we sold it for over 100 million dollars. So if you can figure out from today what's going to happen five years from now. And you can build a business with some good technology in it. You can be where the industry is going to be, and you'll have that kind of value. It's really cool if you can figure it out. The part part's figuring it out. There's so many different things going on. It's accelerating. I don't have it on the slides, but have any of you ever heard of the Gartner hype cycle, of Gartner hype curve? <coughs> you need to write this down and Google it. Because it shows you all these approaching technologies and all the way where the technology uh, trigger point was, where its peak of inflated expectations is, where the trough of disillusionment is, and the plateau of productivity. And it shows you how just about every technology goes through this curve. And for you, tech, for you electrical guys, it looks just like a signal going down and pinging, uh, being damped out. Uh, lots of stuff. So um, we, uh, we had a, a really great exit on that. And, uh, and what's next for me? Um, you've probably seen on the write-up thing, I'm, I'm founder and president of Cognoid. Uh, well, what's Cognoid? Well, I don't know yet. Um, I like the name because it's, uh, to me it stands for cognition or understanding. And then the, the latter part is, is for Android, like robot. And I'm really interested in artificial intelligence. And spend a lot of time digging into artificial intelligence because I think that maybe that's one of those things that five or six years out might be something that could be very interesting. Um, uh, so I'm spending a lot of time just thinking about that and also helping friends, so uh, doing consulting, helping friends run uh, startup businesses as well as run some of the things that they own. Um, so that's my background. Any questions about uh, my background before I move forward? Yes? Um, 
I thought a lot about going and getting a master's, and I thought a lot about going and getting an MBA. And at the time, I worked for the guy who was in charge of the uh, microprocessor division in California. And I was kind of the liaison between California and Huntsville. And um, I told him I was thinking about this. I said, I'm thinking about a master's or an MBA. I said, what do you think? And he said, well, it depends on what you want to do. Do you want to be vice president of engineering, or do you want to run the company? And I said, run the company. It's not, I mean, it's not my fault at all. He said, well, it ought to be. Like, the kidding. No, it ought to be. Before that time, never crossed my mind. I just thought an MBA might help me manage better. I didn't really think about it from a business standpoint because at the time we didn't have this great capability that Mississippi State has here today to teach on modern school, all these kinds of things. Um, so shortly after that conversation, the processor division in California was sold. I no longer had that boss. We had all kinds of turmoil and all kinds of things going on, and so I never pursued either a national I think that a math, I think an MBA um, is a really good leg up for understanding business. Um, I think when I told them lunch, I think it gives you about uh, one third of the experience that you get starting a company and running a company. But it's it's like it's like watching YouTube videos and reading a book on how to swim. Eventually, you got to jump in the water and you got to learn it yourself. There's no way to teach you some of the stuff. So, uh, any other questions? Sorry, I'm going to Yes. Um, right now, when you're starting new businesses and stuff, how often do you get down there with the uh, technology, or are you mainly uh, running it from a business standpoint, acquiring the right people, and uh, making the right connections? It's both, and, and today I'm spending more time, Todd, I'm spending more time on technical. Because I've forgotten some calculus, I've forgotten some differential equations, I've forgotten some of that stuff, and, and I'm, I'm trying to review it. And by the way, I don't, do y'all still have textbooks or do you do it online? Find a way to save the textbooks that you learn from because when you look at them later, when you see it from the textbooks you learn from, it's so much easier to remember and figure it out. And it's just amazing. I can, I can read stuff on, online that's supposed to be helping you on calculus. And, and I'll go and I'll, I'll pick up the old calculus book and turn to it and go, oh, that's what So if you can find a way to, to, to keep that, definitely keep it. Uh, somebody down here. Is there any sort of going to be more helpful in the future, the software side or the hardware side? Or is the company going to be related to both? Um, there are some companies that are just doing software. They, they're just doing really big cloud systems, and the cloud systems are complicated. A lot of the technology is coming from Twitter, to keep in mind. Uh, because Twitter, in fact, I, because of so many technical people here, I go into it. Twitter has come up with a way that you can define your rules for what you want to do with the data, how you want to operate the data, and what you want to do as a result of the data, if and then else kind of stuff. They've come up with a way for that data to go to the database. <laughs> And they can automatically figure out from your rules which data to cache so they don't have to pull it back from the database. So they keep it in this huge cache. And when they're when they're doing the rules in, then they operate from the cache. So it's tons faster. If you think about their business, sending all those messages, that's kind of how they evolve. 
uh, the technology because they had all these little tiny investments. Internet of Things data is just like those little tiny tweets. In fact, we did a, a conference one time at a show and I did a presentation about machines that tweet. And we had machines, we had machines detecting things and tweeting and people that could see the tweets coming up on Twitter. Um, but there's, some, there's a lot of people that are focusing just on that and trying to get businesses on selling these cloud services. And then there are a lot of companies that do the more guts, the hardware, um, the, the gateways to get the data from, from the nodes out to the internet. And there are some companies like Synapse Wireless who does both. They have both the cloud capability and the, the uh, hardware So it's a mixture. The internet of things is nothing without the hardware. Has to have the hardware. Almost all the hardware is custom. It's really, it's got to be really inexpensive. It's got to be really lightweight. It's got to be really low, low power to be able to collect this thing. So it's, it's a big mixture, but you've got to have both somewhere. What else? Yeah, Jeff. Okay. All right, strategy. Um, <coughs> Eric's saying, why do you need to give them perspective? And I thought, well, um, if I talk, and I know y'all would, you know, we'd have really big problems if I did this, but if I talked for a solid month, I couldn't give you enough perspective on, on business. Um, and by the time you were done, you probably would remember my time. So I thought I really need to focus in on a topic. I need to pick something that's really fundamental with business. And it's fundamental whether it's a startup that you create, it's fundamental whether it's Google, it's fundamental whether it's Amazon, it doesn't matter. They all have to have a strategy. And the better the strategy, the better the company. So I wanted to focus on strategy. And again, we're going to have some interactive stuff here too. I want, I want to kind of involve you in this. But I think it's the most important thing um, about a company whether it's a big company or whether it's a small company. And that's one of the things that I learned work, uh, starting that business while I was working at a bigger company is that all the companies are the same. I mean, they're all, they have products, they have technology, they have patents, they have this, you know, they have all these different things that are trying to make money, trying to create value. Um, and they're not just some um, uh, faceless behemoth. They are uh, all very similar um, and fundamental. And so I believe that what I've, what I've pulled together up here is something that's a very fundamental thing that's true no matter what business you, no matter what business you might go into or what company you might go uh, into work for. And you can predict what companies will do if you understand their strategy. So let's dive in here. Can you think about a really bad strategy? Let's come up with a really bad strategy. Shotgun on my fourth <laughs> Running the shotgun on fourth and inches. How about a company strategy? Okay. So trying to sell apps from an app store with people that don't have their app. All right. We're going to start that company. We're going to perfectly execute that company. How well do you think we'll do it's going to be a bad company no matter what. If you can get a great strategy 
just have to be mediocre at execution to have a really good time. What everybody strives for is the great time. Have good execution on a great time. I'm leaving this up here because it can be a little bit tricky. There's a lot of words up there. The bottom line is a great strategy overcomes a lot of problems. So how do you get a strategy? Well, the vision starts there. So the vision comes from the, from the founder or the CEO or it might be the executive team. Um, it might be a team that's been pulled together with a, through a broad swath of a company, if it's a large company, and they're put together to say, okay, we don't want you, we need a new strategy, we want you to come up with a new strategy. The vision <coughs> is a broad thing of what we want to accomplish. It's not complicated. In fact, I'll show you a few. I mean, they, they pretty much nailed what they were going to do. And while this was their, their vision, it wasn't necessarily the strategy of exactly how they were going to do it, but it's, this is what we're going to go through. This is the broad theme of what we're going to do. So this is one I just made up.
it was a lot easier to go broad than it was to try to do something that's really small. So I, I would encourage you to think in terms of a broad vision. But it's got to be realistic. You, know, you can't go nationwide overnight. I mean, if you watch Shark Tank, you got people up there that have no sales, and they go, I'm going to be a national brand. Well, maybe you are, maybe you're not. But um, you got to be realistic about it. You've got to be able to build this up. You remember Google and the iPad? You've got to have stuff that's kind of in the competition space. They've got to want you out of the market. That's how they buy it. That's why they spend the money to buy you. So you need to not forget that step. <coughs> so if you go with a really big vision, you've got to have a really good strategic plan. You really need to think about it. Because if you don't have a really good strategic plan and you don't think about all the steps, then you can lose. You have to be very good, very uh, spend a lot of time on it, talk to a lot of people about it, try to get as much information as you can to make it successful. So then, after you get the after the vision is done, you have to do a strategic plan. So how do you the, the strategic plan is describing how you accomplish the vision? It's more detailed. <clears throat> so what's a good one? That's a good one. We're going to talk about some here in just a minute. We're going to have an interactive conversation about these rebels, and you try to figure out how did they come up, what was their strategy to make competitors grow. So how do you arrive at a strategy? There's lots of stuff to look at. How do you come up with it? What all is there involved? It's a lot of work, but it is worth it. Because you don't want to take $5,000 of your money $10,000 of your parents' money, $20,000 of your friends' money, and then find out uh, this isn't going to work. <coughs> you want to do your homework up front. And if you're in a uh, company that doesn't do this kind of research for their strategy, find another job. Find it quick. Because companies that don't do this don't last. So, What's the core competency of the business? What about financial goals? What are the constraints? Can we, can we borrow money? Do we have to raise money? There's all these kinds of questions that have to be answered to try to figure out well, how fast can we grow? How, you know, what, what are the parameters that let us do this and, and reach this? So who are the competitors? What are their weaknesses? And I don't have it up here, but what are their strengths? Targeting the Targeting competitors' strengths and making them irrelevant is a really good strategy. What about opportunities and threats in our market space? Now, lots of companies start, especially on the internet, they start and they say, okay, we can sell to everybody. That's a bad strategy. That means you're targeting nobody. That means your messages are not targeted. So you really need to pick a geographic area or a customer type and aim at it. And make sure you aim at it really, really tight. <clears throat> so the mission statement. So once you've got the vision, then you've done the strategy. Now you do the mission statement. And this is a really concise description of how you're going to achieve the vision with that strategy. And I'll show you something. So here's the one I wrote for Italiano, the, the fake Italian restaurant. 
So it shows where it's focusing. Excellent service and great Italian food. It's going to be an old Italy atmosphere, so that tells you what the inside is going to look like. It's mid-tier pricing, so that tells you the type of customer that's, that's being targeted, as well as the geographic area. And, and in order to get the food right, we're going to hire a renowned chef. And then when it's, when it's uh, uh, successful in Huntsville, and we get a one-year track record so we don't get too fast, then we'll create a we'll franchise. But we're only going to franchise it in the United States. And then once we get that going, we'll IPO it when we get to $100 million. So there's a lot of things that have to happen. And there's a lot of targeting going on. But that targeting is very important. So let's talk about what mission statements are not. You see these all over the place. I laugh too when I see them. I'm like, are you kidding me? That's what you came up with? And it's always got the word utilize in it instead of use. We will utilize our world class it's not a statement of the obvious. And it's not a slogan. So a slogan comes from the mission statement, but the mission statement is not the slogan, it's on the website. You create a slogan from that, like the best of Italy right now. It defines what we're going to do, what we're going to sell, all these different things that you see up here. Geography is very important. It defines all these things. But one of the most important things it does is it defines what we want. It defines customers we don't want. We're not going to aim at them. We're not going to try to get them. We don't care if they buy from us. They're not who we're targeting. And the salespeople will fight this like crazy. I hate it. We can go sell in Italy. sell anywhere. Yeah, but we're not. We're only selling here. We're aiming here. Do really, really well here and then we'll expand. That focus is extremely important. It's why companies are successful and why companies aren't successful. So here's a good mission statement. Strengths are relevant. So if you're in the lunch today, please don't answer this. 
Um, but how, did, how has Amazon targeted IBM? Any ideas? Prime. Sorry? The Prime membership? Uh, the Prime membership. No, not the Prime membership. They, they, they targeted probably Walmart with the Prime membership. Who said that? Cloud business. Amazon Web Services is IBM's worst nightmare. IBM sells probably $50 billion worth of huge computer systems that go in 500 to 1,000 different companies throughout the world. And what, I, what Amazon is doing is they're saying, hey, you don't really need to buy that. You can use ours. And IBM, IBM has had, when did, when did Amazon launch um, Amazon Web Services? Was that five years ago, four years, four or five years ago? It was a while ago, and IBM has had plenty of time to figure out how to fight against this. And they waited until the last minute, they waited until it's almost too late to start transitioning. <clears throat> but they've taken on IBM, and they're beating because they took IBM's biggest strength huge iron like they can make like nobody else and made it irrelevant. Now, does IBM have a way to fight it? How would you fight? How, if you were an IBM salesman, how would you fight Amazon Web Services? Okay, we're probably going to have to raise hands because we got so many here. Yes. Security. Yeah, Amazon, you lose people's data, don't you? Doesn't that scare you as a big company? Aren't you afraid they might lose your data? Aren't you afraid the hacker in who knows what country might be able to pull this data over and now expose it to everybody? It's a great way to fight against it. But IBM was nowhere. They spent huge amounts of money on advertising and they were nowhere. Any other ideas? Yes. Yes. Sorry? Compatibility. Yeah, compatibility. The software doesn't necessarily run on the cloud yet that a customer uses. Why did IBM call Eric and say, hey, we just want to talk to you guys. Tell us how to fight Amazon. Because all they need to do is ask y'all. Y'all are coming up with the answers. And they, didn't, they, they couldn't do it. They could not bring themselves to fight against it because they didn't want to believe it was really going to be a threat. They wanted to ignore it. And they've almost ignored it too long. Now, what about Amazon versus Walmart? And, and somebody uh, mentioned Prime, which is really helping uh, Amazon a lot. But what fundamental thing did Amazon do um, to target Walmart's strength? Appreciate it. Prices? Yes. Delivered to your door. How, how does Amazon have low prices? What does Amazon own? They have stores everywhere. They have almost. They only have warehouses. They have no store infrastructure and no store employees. So their costs are way lower than Walmart's costs. So while Amazon might, might not be able to buy the product at the low price, Amazon, I'm mean, the, the low price Walmart can buy it. At. They don't have to mark it up as high as Walmart because they don't have to pay for all that other stuff. So they can compete on price. They also now have Amazon, they have Amazon Prime, so you get free shipping. And what else happens? When you go into Walmart, you pay sales tax, right? Back from Amazon, there's no sales tax. 
is today. Um, I don't know about Mississippi. Is there a sales tax in Mississippi? Okay, so they still got a sales tax. Huge amounts of advantages. Plus the selection is amazing. It's amazing. So um, what about, uh, I didn't put it up here, but let's talk about this for just a minute, Amazon versus Google. Amazon's competing there. How is Amazon competing against Google? This is one of Google's biggest worries. How do, you, how do you use Google? Okay, so if you want to buy a product, what do you do? You have to go to another I typed it into Amazon. That's where I'm going to buy it. I don't even type it into Google anymore. Google is scared to death that Facebook search is going to take, take over because of the, the friends linkage. And that Amazon's taken over because of the product they can do with shipping products. So I don't know how Amazon does it. Those guys are good. <laughs> I mean, they are good. They've got strategies in all these different areas, and the strategies are excellent. And they execute really well. <clears throat> so what about Amazon versus Netflix? Amazon Fire. Sorry? Amazon Fire Stick. Okay, they have the Fire Stick to, to uh, allow you to see that everywhere. But with Netflix, I think you can also Chromecast it and you can buy those things. You can buy stuff to be able to send that um, to your TV also. So that's a help for Amazon for Amazon with the Fire Stick. But what fundamentally, what, what's the fundamental difference? And let me, let me give you a hint here. I don't think the way Amazon is approaching it is harming Netflix, it's just different. But it's really interesting to think about how it's different. And Amazon's being very successful. <laughs> so in one way, they're exactly like Netflix. If, you, if you're a Prime member, you get some of these videos free, some of these movies free. Netflix, what happens? You're a member and what? You get it all. So Netflix is picking and choosing what you can see. With Amazon, if it's not part of the free stuff, you can rent it. They've given that little extra thing there, and that gives you, that means almost any content you want to see is on Amazon. Just by that one little change in strategy, they've opened up the whole world. Now, how's it helping? I don't know. I don't know how, how their business is doing. I know Netflix, and I know Netflix is doing really well. And I was a Netflix customer when it first started. Their stock was $8 a share, and I didn't buy it. And it's like $400 now. <clears throat> I was so afraid that Blockbuster was going to react. <laughs> and that's really laughable. <laughs> All right. Can we negate competitor strengths or magnify their weaknesses? This one may be tricky, but if you think about it, it might be able to figure it out. Southwest versus American Airlines. Heard something over here? Ticket price. Ticket price. Ticket. The seating. It's related to the seating. What, what does, you, you may not know this, but what does American, what did American Airlines have? I think they still have it. Yes, yeah, still owned by American Airlines. What do they have that others don't have? First class? No. 
Uh, they got some. They've got a fundamental technology that they have, that they developed over many years. Fundamental technology. Is it the science seeds? It's the science seeds. They had the best reservation system on the planet. And Southwest is going, we're going to start up an airline, and how are we going to compete against the best reservation system on the planet? We're not going to take seat reservations. And it was brilliant. <laughs> I mean, it was brilliant. And they, they developed this whole quirky kind of culture that, you know, tries to make flying kind of doesn't really for me, but a lot of people does. Um, but, I mean, it was a brilliant strategy to negate American Airlines' huge advantage over the industry. And Southwest just took off. I mean, business just took off. You know, almost immediately. Because people love it. So, I mean, a really amazing strategy. Okay, what about a sales channel exploit? <laughs> so, let's go back. <clears throat> Probably when y'all were 15. Um, and, so say 10 years ago. <clears throat> how did, uh, how does Dell sell? How do they, what is their sales channel? Online, so they sell direct, factory direct. <coughs> you buy directly from them. You don't go through a reseller. You don't do anything like that. Hewlett Packard, at that time, sold the reseller. So let's take a rese let, let's let's play the reseller game, okay? Um, Y'all are my reseller, and I'm Hewlett Packard. I have a computer that costs me a thousand dollars to make. And I want to get $2,000 for it. So I sell it to y'all for $2,000. And I say the retail price is $39.99. And then you go to the customer and you tell the customer, hey, I can get this, I can get this for you for $3,000. I got it. I got an end with Hewlett Packard. I can get it cut off the, re, off the retail price. You, you can get $1,000 off the retail price to buy it for me. And I'll, you know, you need 100 of them. I'll take care of them for you. I'll, I'll do all that for you. And Gil Packard is selling tons of these like this because they have feet on the street convincing customers to buy these. They have probably 20,000 resellers. I mean, they have tons of resellers. Dell comes along and says, hmm, this was before the internet. How do I sell this and how do I compete against the Gil Packard? I'll just sell it to you directly. Just call me. Call 800. I'll put ads in magazines when we still have magazines. I'll put ads in the magazines and you can pick and choose what you want. Now what that did is when I when I sold the computer to you, you, you paid me $2,000. Dell comes out and they put an ad in the magazine and say, for $2,000 instead of $3,000, you can buy the computer from us. That's got the same stuff in it. So everybody starts going. At first, people were a little bit nervous about that, not sure, but the price difference was just too great. So people switched over and droves to buy this way. Then when the internet came along, you could just, I mean, it was just going gangbusters because you could configure online and do all these kinds of things with it. So they did a sales channel difference. 
and it killed you. I mean, it just really hurt Hewlett Packard's business. <clears throat> it hurt it so bad they finally decided they had to buy Compact just to keep the business going with enough volume to be able to compete. So that was a really great sales channel uh, exploit. And, and I was telling people at lunch today, you don't have to invent cold fusion to start a business. You can start a business by a different sales channel or doing something for customers that's different, that's a different kind of uh, uh, customer experience than somebody else. So let's talk about customer experience. Target versus Walmart. <coughs> so, so as not to do any Walmart fashion, let's talk about the Target customer experience. So, what does Target? What are some things that Target does to give you a different shopping experience than a Walmart? I know there's not a Target here, but hopefully you suggest. Yeah, so they, they, because they don't sell everything as cheap, they actually have more workers in the store, so they so that you get more help when you're in the store. The lines aren't as long. Sorry? The lines aren't as long? More yeah, they got huge tons of checkout lines going. <clears throat> so you don't you never wait very long in the line. You know what the door looks like at a target? It's like this one, it's shiny and tiled. Best thing though. Have you ever seen the shopping carts? The shopping carts are great. They're they're all plastic wrapped and they're rounded corners. Apple would love them. The rounded corners. Um, and they just look fantastic. So it's a it's a totally different experience and you pay just a little bit more. <clears throat> but the valuation of the target today is much more than Walmart on a price earning uh, basis. Because Walmart is, you know, Walmart's struggling now with a low-cost strategy. They've got to compete with the Amazons and everybody else selling online. They got Target coming out from the from the top. But Walmart's really good. They're they're going to be modifying strategies and fighting on all that. And in fact, the, they started this uh, uh, neighborhood market business where they're putting these smaller grocery stores in. And in Huntsville, I don't know if they're doing that doing this here, but in Huntsville. Um, they have uh, grocery pickup spots, so you go online and you tell them what you want, and tell them what time you're going to be there, and you just pull up, um, swipe your card, and they put the groceries in the front, and you're gone. So you don't have to go in. And so a lot of attempts at innovation to, to try to fight the competition. All right, y'all laughed at this one. It looks so obvious Blockbuster couldn't, couldn't win. So I, I wanted to use this to explain to you this concept of feature children. If you come up with a strategy that forces a, a, one of the leaders in an industry to have to eat their children, you will win. They will be so slow to react, you will make your head spin that slow. So Netflix comes out, and the first thing they do so what happened, I don't know if you know this, but uh, the CEO of Netflix, the founder, he rented, I don't know if it was from Blockbuster or not, but he rented a DVD from a rental store, and he was late getting it back, and they charged him like $30. And it made him so mad, he said, I wonder if you can ship these DVDs through the land. He tried it. came through fine. He's like, okay, I think I know what I'm going to do. 
So the very first thing you did on Netflix is you, you rented DVDs. There were no late fees. You had a queue. And when you shift, when you, you, you could buy three, have three out at a time or five out at a time, whichever you wanted. And when you shift one back, they shipped you the next one in your queue. There were no late fees. They sent you the mailer with it, so you didn't have to go, you know, you didn't have to go back to a store or anything like that. It was so convenient. Um, and then they made a really great transition to um, streaming. Now they kind of messed up when they tried to get out of the DVD space and they came up with, I think it was called Quickster or something. I think Saturday Night Live made fun of them. Um, but that's that's basically, I think, the only misstep they made is when they, when they did that. But they came out with this and Blockbuster, they're like Walmart. They've got all these facilities with DVDs everywhere and employees. They don't know what to do. I mean, how do you compete? So the last thing they want to do is make is help Netflix make their facilities obsolete. Now, could they come up with a strategy? I don't know. Can y'all come up with a strategy that would save Blockbuster? Not without them losing a bunch of money. So Netflix came up with a way to, to totally make that strength, to totally negate Blockbuster had no idea how to, how to react. And that is a great strategy. So regarding strategy, you need to take the time to do it. And if, you, if you're going to be hired by a company, look on their website and see what their strategy is. See if it makes sense to you before you accept the job. See if you think their strategy will work. But you know, as, we, as we, I mentioned, the vision statement comes first, and that's that broad theme. And then the strategy is all at work. You got to pull together. Um, here's what the, the overall strategy is going to be, and then you do a mission statement from that. It's really important uh, to to how you achieve a good business, a good business, and it's also important on how to how to get funding. <clears throat> so I wanted to give you some quick advice in other areas, and the way I'm doing this, some of these are kind of written uh, um, they're not riddles but they're not obvious so I want to give y'all a chance to see if y'all can figure out what I mean by it I want to guess this has to do with when you're starting up a business. Yes. Yes, 
So all this is good advice, but we still haven't hit on exactly what the meaning here. We're way in the back. That, see, you're all you're all coming up with good things, but we still haven't hit it. Equity. That is about equity. What does it mean? Uh, like giving out equity to gain capital so that you can like continue your business. You're close. You're close. Yes.
because you can find money, but it's, you want to find money from people who will help the business and not, and not be a problem. Um, we talked about this summit lunch, but I have never seen somebody with a good business plan and good leadership that could not find money to fund this. So all of you who are on the fence in here about starting a business, I've never seen it where that wasn't the case, especially in a reasonable economy. If it was 2008, 2009, nobody could get it. But, you know, in a reasonable economy, to a good economy, you can find money. But the important thing is that leadership. If you walk in to somebody and you don't know 70% of the business and you haven't found a partner who does, you're not good leadership. You've got to have the right leadership when you walk in with the right business. So we talked about this some too. Verify that broad plan locally and then expand. Don't try to don't try to go take over the nation first. Make sure it works locally. Pick a very small geography and make sure it works and then expand. Okay, so what's strategic market? Finding <coughs> out your customer base to your customer side. Okay, so segmenting and targeting, find out who your customer base is. And what is all that going to affect? Who buys your product? And what is that going to affect? How much sales do you have? Come back before that. You got, okay, let's, I'm going to pick on you, okay? All right, so you, you start the business, you have 10 employees, um, one of them is a salesperson, and eight of them are engineers. Um, first thing the engineers are going to want to know is, okay, what do you want us to design? Well, what features do you want? Well, what colors? Well, who are you trying to target? Yeah, so who you're trying to target determines what features. And the features that go into the product determine what the cost is going to be of the product. So if you don't know what they're willing to pay, you might put too many features in, and now you've got a product that's too high price now. So you've got to do the strategic marketing first. You've got to do the product. First. You've got to figure out what the customer wants, what features, what colors, what shape. You've got to figure all that out first. <coughs> Otherwise, engineers will come back with whatever they decide to come back with. And I've seen some really great designs, and I've seen some really awful designs when they don't get in. So you have to be really careful and do the strategic marketing. All right, price-based cost. <coughs> figure out how much you can sell for, then build it with how much you have of that. That's right. So here's the sales for here's the price the customer is willing to pay over here. Okay, and then you back into whatever channel you're using, whatever they're going to take. You say, okay, there's the amount the channel is going to take. And then you go, okay, how much margin, how much do I need to make above and beyond what my cost is? And that's this next segment. And now you've arrived at the cost that includes manufacturing, that includes shipping, delivery, all the boxes, everything. That's what engineering gets told, okay, this is what it's got, this is what it's got to cost, all of it. If you don't do it, if you don't do price-based costing, come back from the price the customer is going to pay, and what you'll end up is you'll be over here. 
and then selling it. So it's really important to do price-based stuff. I would strongly encourage you to start a business, or if you work in a business, if you take a job inside a business, find a mentor. Find someone that will help you learn the ropes, someone who might already know the ropes for, for a particular business segment, and have them help you, help guide you through it, help you make decisions. So I'm going to pick on the ECE guys in here for a minute, not pick on, but um, so a lot of times people say, well, just tell us, just tell us the formula. Making a successful Just tell us. Stop telling us all these different little things. Tell us how to do it. And so, a business is like a huge state machine. And I see eyes glaze with a non technical, and the DCs are going, yeah. <laughs> all right, so a huge state machine. So, with a state machine, you have initial conditions, and then you have Lot, all the different states you could be in, and the reasons that you're transitioning, or what will allow you to transition to those states. So my question on somebody starting a business is, okay, what are your initial conditions? How many of them are there? Ten? Fifty? Hundred million? It's infinite. There's no way to give you the equation. We can't even come in and say, okay, here's what you need to know so that when you reach this particular path, here's the right decision to make. Because it depends on the situation. So what we're trying to do is convey that to you, but it's really hard to do that. And one great shortcut is to find mentors that are successful in the business that you're in and have them work with. And there are a lot of people out there that are willing to help. Last but not least, you know, throughout this whole process, um, I still got married, I still have family, I didn't put everything into the business. Um, sometimes the businesses don't work out, and you don't want to wake up and be, you know, 40 years old and go, wow, why did I waste those 15 years? I don't have, I don't have a family, I can't believe I just wasted that. So I'd encourage you, find a way to do all this and still go through life. Uh, the way you want to go through life, and don't do, don't just throw all that away. So I wish you much luck. I'll see you in 2047. <laughs>